Thanks, Emily. Morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. Uh, so as Emily alluded to in her prayer, uh, we're in the middle of a two, uh, actually, we're in the second week of a three-week series that will kind of hopefully prepare us as we approach Good Friday and Easter in a couple weeks. Uh, as you can see in your sermon uh, outline, I've titled this series Dealing with Darkness. Um, in a couple weeks, we'll be remembering the darkest night in history when our Lord Jesus was crucified. And then after that, celebrating the most glorious day in history thus far, when Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, so Stan began the series uh, last Sunday uh, when he spoke on Jesus being the light that overcomes the darkness. And for the next two weeks, I want us, I want us to shift to the Last Supper. And we're going to look at a couple of Jesus' teaching while he was with the disciples um, that final night before his arrest. And I want us to look at a couple of sections that I think are uh, not so much uh, focused on, on when there's uh, messages on uh, what we call the upper room discourses, his uh, teachings uh, during the Passover supper. So it was Thursday night for Jesus and the disciples. Luke 22, verses 15 to 16. As the Passover dinner was about to begin, you can see you know, earlier on uh, in the chapter, Jesus tells the disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. You know, when I read this, I thought this was really interesting because when you hear him say this, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you, you think of this, you know, that this would be a time maybe of one of more celebratory in nature, you know, this is his last meal with his disciples before he departs from this earth. You know, kind of, maybe, you know, like celebrating Fat Tuesday before Lent. You know, you kind of just have this final meal where you, you can relax and have fun and enjoy yourself. But Jesus will use this occasion to wash the disciples' feet, to teach them a lesson about servanthood. After this, you can see in our chapter, beginning with verse 21, Jesus is going to talk about the disciple who will betray him. Then the disciples begin arguing amongst them about which one is the greatest. Then after that, you have our passage. And then after that, Jesus is going to teach them about how things are going to be for the disciples once he leaves this earth. So when you see these things, I mean, these are not really issues that would give Jesus much cause for celebration. Yet he has desired to eat this Passover with the disciples to prepare them for the troubles that lie ahead. And as you heard from our scripture reading today, we're going to focus specifically on Satan's attack on Peter. And I think many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis' book, uh, The Screwtape Letters. You know, it details the imagined correspondence between a senior demon Screwtape and he, as he tries to train and instruct uh, his nephew, a junior apprentice named Wormwood. They correspond as Wormwood is assigned to corrupt a new believer living in London during World War II. And just as a side note, um, if you guys are Calvin and Hobbes fans, uh, I don't know if you know this, but um, Phil Watterson, the author, or the creator of Calvin and Hobbes, uh, was a C.S. Lewis fan too, because Calvin's teacher, if you didn't know, her name was Miss Wormwood, and she was named after... Um, this book, or the character in this book, um, Bill Watteson described uh, the teacher as kind of this devilish, young, devilish type of 
uh, you know, this teacher. And so he named her Miss Wormwood. And I tell you that, knowing that in a week from now, the only thing you're going to remember is that Calvin's teacher is named Miss Wormwood. Um, but actually, this year marks the 75th anniversary of the screw tape letters. He wrote it in 1942. And in what might have been his final interview, C.S. Lewis shared that he actually didn't enjoy writing this book. He says, They were dry and gritty going. At the time, I was thinking of objections to the Christian life and decided to put them into this form. That's what the devil would say. You know. But making goods bad and bads good gets to be fatiguing. Moreover, the diabolical nature of the book pushed Lewis into a depression. Dr. Robert Bank, the leading scholar of Lewis from Australia, said that day after day, having the devil as an interlocutor or dialoguer took its toll on Lewis. The subject matter was almost too dark. It was too dark for Lewis to write about and engage in with such an all-encompassing matter. And, and I agree. I mean, we don't often talk about the devil, and, and, and I think so because it is dark. I mean, I'd rather talk about Jesus any day than Satan. But I think sometimes it's good and necessary to talk about him from time to time as we need to be reminded that Satan still is an active force in this world, and we have to be aware of the nature of his work. Our passage starts off with Jesus warning Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. What does this phrase mean, sift like wheat? Remember, at the time when Jesus was on earth, he used examples and terminology that were you know, relevant to, to his audience back then. It was mostly in agrarian, farming, and fishing society, so he used words and phrases taken from this context. So when he said something like, sift like wheat, the people would be nodding their heads, you know, knowing exactly what he meant. But that's not so much for us, unless we're farmers, and I don't think any of us are. So I found, hopefully it'll work, a short video that'll show us a little bit about what sifting like wheat means. So let's see if this works. If you can't read, it says, after threshing, it must be sifted to separate the berries from... I can hear the wheat falling into the bin when I don't hear it anymore. It's sifted out. Says the fine screen is a quarter-inch hardware cloth. And says, do you hear the falling wheat?
sifting it through the fine screen again will remove more large pieces and make it easier to winnow. Now it can be winnowed. This is winnowing wheat in slow motion at a quarter speed. Uh, the fan is on medium. The heavy wheat falls while the light, lighter chaff blows away. Hopefully, I don't know if you can catch it, it's so fine, but you can see the wheat kernels falling into the bucket and all this other stuff just blowing away the fan. Okay, we can stop there. So that's what sifting wheat is. Okay, so what, is, what does that mean? What does that mean? So from the video, you can see that the goal is just to get the wheat kernels, you know, and let everything else just blow away. He saw the farmer, you know, put the wheat into the mesh and he violently shook it. The heavy kernels would fall into the basket while the rest just blew off. And I thought it was interesting too, just to kind of watch the winnowing process where he was, you know, pouring the, the, pouring the wheat out and, and the wheat, you know, heavy wheat kernels fall and the fan just blew all the chaff away. So the wheat here symbolized Peter's faith. And the goal for Satan was to test how real it was. He wanted to do something that figuratively like we saw, and then he would just shake it and throw it up in the air violently to see if his faith would remain steadfast. Would it drop into the bucket, or would it just blow away like chaff? And one important thing to note in verse 31 is that when we read, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, we read it and think of the you, as singularly referring to Peter. But in the original language, the verb used is actually plural. Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. That's Satan's goal, to destroy the faith of the believers, to test it and try it and sift it and see if it would fail so that they would turn their backs on Jesus and no longer put their faith in him. Satan knows that the disciples' faith are we. Jesus just washed the disciples' feet and instructed them to follow his example. And what did they do afterwards? They argued about who was the greatest. Jesus tells the disciples that one of them would betray him. And they're doubting themselves because they didn't even know which one would betray him. If Satan could get all the believers, these disciples, to turn their backs on Jesus then Jesus' work on the cross would be all for naught. In Revelation 12.10, Satan is called the accuser. And in this verse, um, it says, the accuser of our brothers and sister who accuses them before our God day and night. He accuses his believers before God day and night. You know, he's telling God, your followers are weak, they're feeble-minded, 
Let me test them and I'll show you what they're made out of. So he'll do whatever he can to destroy their faith. He'll use deception. He'll lie. John 8.44 calls Satan the father of lies. In the book of Job, we see he brings about destruction, disease, and even death. He's lethal in his methods, but fortunately, he's limited. There's a key word in verse 31, which is asked. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He asked. This implies that Satan doesn't have free reign to do whatever he wants to do. He's limited to do only what God allows him to do. And we find this true also in the book of Job. In chapter 1 of Job, it describes Satan as being, as coming before God and bringing up accusations about Job. Job only fears you because you've blessed him. Strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And God says, okay, you have permission to have access to Job, but you cannot lay a finger on him. And then in Job 2, Satan comes to God again to accuse Job. Skin for skin, a man would give all he has for his own life, but strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And God allowed Satan to Job, but he tells Satan, you must spare his life. So though Satan seeks to do whatever he can to destroy a believer's faith, he cannot do anything without asking permission first. And he can only act within the boundaries set by God. Which may cause you to ask a very good question, which is, well, why doesn't God just say no, right? When Satan comes to accuse the brothers and sisters, why doesn't doesn't God say, no way, you can't touch them? Well, the answer is not an easy one. But somehow we have to understand that allowing Satan's schemes somehow brings more glory to God. I think this illustration that I read from John Piper was pretty good in helping to explain this. He says, I picture God as an omniscient general whose aim is to fight and win the war in a way that will bring the most glory for his magnificent strategic wisdom and power. Instead of steamrolling over the enemy all at once, he combines strategic advances and retreats that allow the enemy some illusions of success and brings out all their arrogance and hate for the general so that it can be seen for what it is. In his wisdom, the general knows when the end should come. He will give way for a time to allow the enemy to rage in defiance, and then when sin is seen for all that it is, he will close in and destroy the enemy in such a way that none can doubt the wisdom and glory and power of the general. So somehow, by God allowing Satan to have this access, it brings more glory to God. And there's one other reason, which we'll look at in a bit. But anyway, Satan is asked to sift Peter like wheat, and Jesus allows him to, to, to do so. And Peter, probably out of his pride, thinks he will stand firm in Satan's schemes. Peter tells Jesus in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus replied, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. You know, in reading this, I recognize that we oftentimes can be like Peter. You know, we can just sing songs like we did at the beginning. You know, ever I will sing, only you will I adore. Glorify my Lord, only you will I serve. Really? We will only adore Jesus at all times and no one else? We will only serve Jesus at all times and no one else? Really? 
You know, are we just spouting words like Peter that we're ready to go with the Lord to prison and even to death? And maybe to give Peter some credit, maybe he just had some false assumptions. I think that's important when, Jesus, when Peter said, with you I am ready to go to prison and to death. With you, with Jesus by his side, with him being physically present. Because Peter, after all, was the one, the only one who would jump out of the boat, you know, to go walk on water, to be with Jesus. So maybe Peter did have this false assumption that, well, Jesus, as long as you're with me, I can be, you know, I'll go to prison with you, I'll die for you. But once Jesus was arrested, once Jesus was no longer physically near Peter, Peter lost faith and he denied Christ. And so will we stand for firm? Or will we be like the chaff you know, in the video that will just you know, blow away when the winds of trials blow, blow away? <clears throat> and though Peter failed, he didn't fail completely due to Jesus' intervention. Verse 32, But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And from this verse, I see three things Jesus did to protect Peter from Satan's attacks. The first, as you can see, and you could probably guess, is that he prays for Peter. He asks his father to protect Peter from Satan's onslaught. That though Satan seeks to destroy his faith, that God would protect his faith from being destroyed. The second thing that Jesus does to protect Peter is give perseverance. Jesus is completely confident that his father will answer his prayer. He knows Peter's faith will fail. He says that to Peter. But it will not be completely destroyed. We know, and we know Jesus had this confidence because in verse 32 he says, And when you have turned back. So though God gave Satan permission to sift Simon, he didn't allow his faith to completely blow away like chaff. He knew there would be a point that Peter would turn back. And you know, looking at these first two interventions, it's encouraging to know that, you know, it's not just for Peter, but for all who would place their trust in him, in Jesus, this is also true. You know, I find these first two encouraging because I know if it were up to me, I would lose my salvation. I can't, I didn't do anything to earn salvation. And I wouldn't be able to do enough to keep it if it was left on my own. Although Satan is the father of lies, I think he is correct when he goes to accuse the brothers, brothers and sisters before God about one thing. I think the truth is, we're weak. I'm weak. My faith is weak. It would blow away if Satan turned up the wind speed high enough. But Jesus protects us. He prays for his disciples. One of his earlier prayers for his disciples can be seen in John 17. In verse 15, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He prays for us and he helps us persevere. We can see with Peter that Jesus already laid the groundwork for Peter's restoration even before he fell, indicating God's compassion on him. So I'm thankful for Jesus' intervention, and I hope you are too. And I mentioned 
that earlier that Luke 22 not only tells the prediction of Peter's denial, but also the betrayal of Judas. And you may wonder, what's the difference between the two? Well, why, why did Peter, you know, why was, did he persevere and Judas didn't? Why did Judas fail? And I think the difference lies within their actions and their hearts. Judas took active action against Jesus by betraying him. Peter had a failure of nerve that caused him to distance, distance himself from Jesus publicly. Jesus, Judas, on the other hand, did not have a failure of nerve. He had a failure of heart. In the end, Peter truly repented. Judas never did. Yes, he felt remorse for what he did. As you can see, find in Matthew 27, he felt sorry. But he never repented. He never went to God. And this is why Peter could be restored while Judas was condemned. So once again, for those who continually place their hope and trust in Jesus, God will not let Satan's attacks bring you to ruin. And then the third way Jesus intervenes on our behalf is that he allows Satan to attack us with a greater purpose in mind. Greater purpose. There was a reason why God allowed Satan to sift Peter. And that's found at the end of verse 32. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Though Peter did deny Christ, ultimately his faith did not completely fail. He literally followed Jesus to the cross. He was one of the first ones to run to the grave when the women came back saying Jesus' body was missing. He was there when Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection. And he restored Jesus, or he restored Peter in John 21. So you get a sense that his faith, rather than being crushed, was refined and strengthened through this momentary collapse. Through this trial and others, Peter became strong. And no doubt, he was used. I mean, we can see it all through Acts how he was used to strengthen his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Through this incident, I also believe Peter became more aware of Satan's power and desire to destroy a believer's faith. In his first letter in Scripture, in 1 Peter, in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he warns his readers, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist them. Stand firm in the faith. So you can easily imagine Peter, when he penned these words, brought him back 30 years earlier when Jesus warned him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. You know, he wrote these words, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, thinking, you know, I have first-hand experience of that. I know what it's like. So be alert. Be ready. Remember that Satan is active and alive in the world today. He's working, and his goal is to destroy your faith. And so as Peter wrote in First Peter, be alert, resist him. And know that the battle is not yours alone to face, but Jesus is there with you, intervening on your behalf. 
If you're currently going through a trial that is really testing your faith 